Greetings, brothers and sisters. Thanks for joining us for worship here this last Sunday in January. We're so glad you're with us. You just heard the text read by our Doug Juline, and so we're going to jump right in as we continue in this series entitled Entrusted to You as we now start 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me just pray. Father, teach us this morning. Guide us into uh, the truth of your word. Help us to Help it to form us. Father, even as we talk about what Paul urges as of most importance is prayer. Help, help it to be something that we not just feel a social guilt over, but actually just grow in our desire to commune with you individually and collectively as the people of God. So help us to hear your word, uh, not, not, to, not to justify or, or to explain away, but just to be recipients of your loving guidance into our lives. We thank you that each and every week your word we can come to and it speaks in those ways to us. Help us to grow this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, pray. That's what Paul says. If you've been with us, you'll, hear, you'll, 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 you'll have heard me say that the first chapter of 1 Timothy really sets the stage for all the pastoral letters. But specifically in 1 Timothy, Timothy, it does a good job of finishing the introduction. Paul carefully took this young pastor, Pastor Tim. He gives him his instructions, his commands as for the Lord. He gives his own testimony. He exhorts him to be faithful. He reminds him it's never about his own skills or abilities or personality, but the grace and the power of God. He gives his own life as a testimony of that. He goes back to his exhortation. This is it. Follow this through. And now he begins in the letter proper, we could say, to begin to work through topics and issues to exhort him and his church in the city of Ephesus to be faithful and fruitful. And he begins with this, first of all. That statement is not the beginning of a list of points. It's not like he's saying first, second, third. You might be best suited to translate that phrase as of first importance. Connecting with uh, what he said in verse three with this command, Paul says, I urge of first importance that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I think those first two verses are simply saying this. One of the primary duties of the people of God is prayer. It's just worth noting that when Paul is giving this exhortation to a church in a context of ministry, in a fallen and broken world, the first thing he says is prayer. And I wonder how many of us would have that on the radar. The first thing we would think would be some maybe other aspect of an organization called a church. But the first thing the Apostle Paul, i.e. the first thing the Lord says to his people is that we should pray. So let, me, let me just mention three things of, of kind of fleshing these two verses out that, that Paul speaks of in verses one and two. The first is this, prayer should happen in a variety of ways. Paul uses four words for prayer, supplications, prayers, just generally translated prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Now, each of those are prayer terms, but they're difficult to define 
or even to distinguish with precision. To be honest with you, even though there's different Greek words that those designate and and we put them in different English words, the reality is, is that they're very much synonymous. They're different versions of speaking about the same thing. Maybe we could nuance them a little bit. Supplications would usually just be the term for requests. Present your request to God. Prayer is more the generic term that you'll find in prayer and corporate worship. Just beseeching God, talking, communicating with God. But that doesn't mean it avoids or denies that requests are being made. So you see where that overlap could be? Intercession has a bit more of a technical sense regarding the petition from an inferior to a superior. So like we're, we're going through Christ to the Father. We're, we're asking as, as servants of, of God, as children of God to one who is above us, we're bringing our concerns and our needs to him. And then even Thanksgiving, it teaches us that when we pray, we not only pray when we have need, but we should also be praying for what we have received. Maybe we too easily get caught up in thinking from a self-focused perspective of what we want or need with a God focus just overflows us with thanksgiving. The variety of these terms, without needing to define them, uh, the Bible loves to give nuancing of terms. The Psalms do this. We saw some of this in the Gospel of John with terms like love. Uh, there, there's numerous ways that the Bible will kind of hit around a topic at several different points, never wanting just like scientific precision to be the point of the message, but to maybe say something like this, that by mentioning these four different words and synonyms for prayer, we are taught of the richness of the spiritual exercise of prayer. There's a richness to it. It just happens in lots of different ways. Or or think of it this way. Prayer fits every person. No matter where you're at, as as a, a creature in God's creation underneath a creator, you could be the king, you could be a slave, you could, be, uh, you could be wealthy, you could be poor, you could be healthy, you could be sick. Prayer fits every person. It fits every situation. It fits every need. It fits every moment. Like the, just those phrases teach us how to think about the richness of the life of prayer. These terms, it might be worth noting, reflect corporate worship. In our individualistic culture, we can miss that. We, we can kind of focus and almost highlight kind of a prayer closet ministry over against the corporate gathering of the church to pray. Now again, that isn't to pit individualism against the corporate nature of prayer and practices of God's people. It's simply to say, Paul is assuming that this letter read in the Ephesian church is exhorting the congregation to pray. We, coming over three, maybe four years ago, and COVID derailed that this past year, but we established a Wednesday evening prayer gathering we just called First Things. Again, it kind of fits Paul's language here. First of all, of first important, first things is prayer. And we were encouraged to see people coming weekly or, 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 or every other week or even monthly at times to, to gather in prayer. And we want to continue that. We, we can't imagine being a church that doesn't have 
a time, corporate gathering of prayer. Whether we're all praying simultaneously together over certain issues or we're breaking up into groups or even as we've done the last few years prior to COVID, we would walk around the first gathering of the ministry year, we'd walk around the church and we'd pray over rooms, asking God to minister, whether it's to our children, to senior saints, to things prepared in the kitchen, to the sound and tech people up above, to the, the singers on the stage and the preaching of God's word, to the working in people's heart in, in, in the congregational gathering of corporate worship, to the people being welcomed when they come in, to safety around the building, to kids in the youth room or moms and women's and men's groups meeting. We, we pray around the church. That, that should be of first importance. And I want to exhort us to do that. I think this text of scripture should exhort the pastors and elders and the staff of the church to prioritize prayer as part of what it means to be the worshiping community of God. I think this passage should exhort individuals to be praying in their, as families and, and participating in the activities of prayer in the church. Prayer should happen in a variety of ways. Second thing we can gain from verses one and two is this. Prayer should happen for a variety of people. Notice after the four prayer words, Paul says this, they should be made for all people. Quite simply, we're commanded to pray for all kinds of people, the people that we immediately have affections for and we're worried about, concerned for, maybe even the people who are enemies. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your neighbors. Is there a better way to love neighbor? Or is there a, a way of more importance to love neighbor than just to be praying for them? Praying for our communities. Praying for our schools and hospitals. Praying for people in our congregation. That's, again, of first importance way of loving one another. The thanksgiving aspect of prayer and even just giving our petitions to God is a way of loving God. So notice how prayer can reflect love for God, love for neighbor, and love for one another. It's interesting, though, that the only kind of people group he mentions are those who are the ruling elite. He says at the beginning of verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Likely, he's saying that to challenge the thought that we would pray for those with whom we agree only. Like that we would only pray for those with whom we find agreement. And even with a transition of president within the last month, I can imagine that prayers for a president by those who voted for the former president were much easier to do. Maybe impassioned prayers when, when it felt like there was something for or against him in play. Then a new president comes in, maybe one for whom not all of us voted. Do we pray equally? If we don't, with the same heartfelt compassion, we're going against what God's word specifically says. Prayer should happen for a variety, in a variety of ways. It should happen for a variety of people. Finally, prayer should happen for us. Maybe I could have even said prayer happens to us. Ultimately, that we would be changed into godly people. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 2, we all, lists of prayers for all people, kings and those in high positions, comma, that we may. You could even translate that, so that. Here's the ultimate result. Like here's one of the goals. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, now this comes right after mentioning the king's and the ruling elite. So maybe we could say that we pray for those 
in governing authority over us so that we learn submission and servitude even when it is hard or difficult. So that we remind ourselves when you're praying for a king, you're praying to the person who outranks the king. So we're praying that God would be remind us that of his eternal kingship and his sovereign way. We pray in all kinds of ways so that we are formed in all kinds of ways. Look at, look at the end of verse two, that, that so that section, listen to what it describes, that a Christian is peaceful. A Christian leads a quiet life. A Christian is godly. A Christian is dignified. That our prayer life shapes us. It forms us. And, and maybe it's just, in one sense, that posture of resigning our control. We're just, we're just letting God be God. And when we pray, we are required to acknowledge his, his, his reign over us, his sovereignty over the world, our position before him. We only have access to the Father through the Son. We're pl- praying in Jesus' name. That just by getting in the posture of prayer, we are forming ourselves. So the person who regularly prays as individual, as an individual, and as the corporate church has regularly been formed. We've, we've stretched, so to speak. We've exercised the spiritualness of our reality in such a way that it forms us. Like the person who regularly exercises and can run up two or three flights of stairs and not be winded. So also, because we've regularly prayed, we've regularly resigned ourselves to God's kingship, we've regularly seen the significance of the mediating work of Jesus Christ, we've regularly acknowledged over hundreds of things that God's in control and we are not, that it changes how we live. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. We don't fight as those who think the victory is ours to be had. It shapes us. It might even shape us not just internally regarding how we live in the world, but how we live on mission. Look at what verse 4 says, that God desires all people to be saved. We pray for all people. Why? Because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the truth. So maybe not only prayer shapes how we live in the world, but how we serve in the world. Because we prayed for our neighbors, it gives us the boldness, the confidence, maybe, an, maybe a, a moral exhortation to go invite them to come to something at church or to join us in a study in our homes in God's word or just to build relationships with people over bread and soup or coffee because we prayed for them. Brothers and sisters, our Christian lives should be filled with times of both intentional and sporadic prayer, both at an individual level and at a corporate level. We should be praying in worship. We should be praying in small group gatherings. We should be praying in family times. We could sh- should be praying in individual moments if during our day. Paul says pray without ceasing, meaning prayer in one sense is a posture in which we live as a Christian. One of the primary duties of the people of God, according to verses one and two, is prayer. And we would do well to hear that and to respond. The last thing we'll look at this morning is in verses three to seven. Paul 
with this theme, with, the, with this content of prayer, gives us a glimpse into the nature and character of God and the gospel. I summarize those verses by saying this, prayer reflects the gospel and God's intentions for the world. Look at verse three. What a, what a fascinating statement this is. Paul is kind of commentating on what he just exhorted his people to do, and he says, this is good. Like, this is good. And he adds this, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. God is pleased when his people pray. I mean, how many of us, even this past Christmas, enjoyed so much giving a gift that we knew. We, we, we were intentional. We, we used creativity. We did research to give a gift that somebody wanted. Maybe it was our spouse. Maybe it was a close friend. Maybe it was one of our kids or grandkids. Maybe it was a coworker. But we were so excited. In fact, it was, we were almost as excited uh, as they were in receiving it to, to give it. We couldn't wait for them to open it. We're watching their face to see the expression. We just enjoyed, like a parent loves to give good gifts to his and her children. God is given a gift when we pray, when we align ourselves to him through Jesus Christ, when we submit ourselves as creature to creator, when, when we give of our worries and our needs and our desires and even hopes that fit his mission in the world. In fact, Paul connects this, this pleasing desire of God to the larger desires God has for the world. In fact, what you end up seeing in verses four to six is a summary of the gospel. There's, there, there, there's three core statements there. Right? Verse four and verse five and verse six each give one of those. Let me just hit on those for a minute because anytime God's word opens the hood of the, of the engine and lets us see the gospel and ultimately the gospel is God's own heart for the world and ultimately his own glory, we wanna, we wanna look at that. Verse four says this, that God does... God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is what God's will is. God desires to reveal himself to the whole world. He wants to make himself known. He wants to unite all of creation to himself, the creator. That is our primary mission as a church is to declare the gospel, which is this intention to make God known, to display his glory. And the goal, of course, is redemption. The goal of this knowledge is not just information gaining, but of redeeming them. He desires all people to be saved. That phrase has been a point of debate. Let me, let me mention this as a mild tangent, just as a way of learning how to think theologically from God's word. That, that phrase God desires all to be saved is often debated between Arminians and Calvinists, the two terms used to describe different perspectives on how salvation is gained. Arminianist, an Arminian would say that we have completely free choice, free will. Uh, God offers this to all people, and then the, we decide if we are going to accept it or not, and that this text emphasizes that. He, he wouldn't choose any particular because he wants all to be saved. Or Calvinists would argue, even if this text isn't the easiest to fit that position, the Calvinists would say, no, 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 there's, there's no there, 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 it's all under God's sovereign control. In fact, regeneration or salvation 
comes before faith. That faith is simply a symptom. Our response to God is a symptom of God's work in us. That's one way of understanding the difference between the Arminian and the Calvinist position. So an Arminian would see this text and say, well, yes, I mean, clearly God wants all to be saved. He extends that to all people and it's on them. The onus is on them to accept or reject. The Calvinists would say, well, this is reflecting God's general will. It's reflecting his character, his, but it's not necessarily reflecting his secret will or his special will. Because if God desired, if God willed all to be saved, who could go against his will? How could any servant reject the command of a sovereign? So this is God's general will, not his special will. I won't belabor that point, and maybe even any of our kids listening to this never have heard the term Arminianism or Calvinism, but we want to be connecting God's word to the larger discussions that have happened in God's church And anyway, at least in my own perspective, uh, more in the Calvinistic leaning, this would speak to God's character, God's God's intentions. And ours should reflect the same, that we should be declaring God's knowledge and the saving work of God to many, many people. Whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, you can lean in the fact that our declaration is ultimately what we've been assigned to do, to make God known. Verse 4 is teaching us the character of God for which we should be praying as well. Verse 5, another gospel statement, not just God's character, his intentions, the reason behind him sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Verse 5 is teaching us the, the fact of God's role in this. For there is one God, Paul says, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I think there's a bit of a play on words notice if you look at near the end of five, one mediator between God and men, comma, the man, Jesus Christ. Maybe a a bit more inclusive translation would have been, and equally accurate, the one mediator between God and people, or God and humanity. But by translating it as a masculine men, it fits so well with, out of all of God's people, there was one person, That is that mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. God acts on his desires to make himself known by sending Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Verse five is teaching us but the engine behind Christmas, that God loved the world so much, he desires to make the world know who their creator is, to extend his love to them, that he sends Jesus Christ to mediate. He's the go-between. He's the bridge. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we're called Christians, Christians. We need the person and work of Christ to give us access to God the Father. My adoption as a child of God is only possible by faith in Jesus Christ and his death for me. And that leads us to verse 6. It's not just that he came to mediate Christmas. It's that he died for us and rose again Good Friday and Easter. Verse 6 says, who, Jesus Christ, gave himself as a ransom. That's a good word. He, he exchanged his life for ours, his perfect life for our sinful life, his perfect sacrificial death for the debt and the sin that we owed to God. That's what ransom means. 
He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That last phrase might be confusing, but saying that in God's perfect time in human history, when everything was set up, God brought Jesus into the world to redeem it, to bring it back to himself. You see how these verses talk about the gospel? Verse four teaches us about God's purposes and desires. Verse five teaches us about God's mediation through Christ, Christmas, the incarnation. Verse six teaches us about uh, the, the, the exchange, the death of Christ, Good Friday and Easter. And finally, verse seven, Paul ends with this. This is what I was appointed to do as a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, and specifically for him, his assignment is to the Gentiles, to those who are outside of Israel. And well, as much as this is Paul's ministry, by extension, it's the church's ministry who serve as Christ's ambassadors to the world. This leads us all back to why do we pray? <laughs> There's a lot of truth there. God's purposes, revealing himself, the work of Jesus. You, you would think of all this work to do, we better get working. And yet of first importance is what? It's to pray. It's to get ourselves prepared, our posture right, to know ultimately that when we work, we work, but when God works, true work happens. So why do we pray? Let me just give you four kind of summarizing reflections. First, we pray because we're commanded to. It's been a command. We must obey it. Secondly, and beautifully, it pleases God. And we want to please our Lord and our Savior. Third, we pray because we've been given the gift of access to God through Christ. Like we have access to our Creator. We have access to God the Father. Who doesn't want to spend time with God the Father and access and live under His loving reign? And finally, fourth, we pray because it forms us. It makes us a kind of people that God desires us to be and, and is a central part of our mission and ministry in the world. After hearing all of what God intends to do in the world and realizing that he has given that assignment to his people, the church, how could we do anything but stop and pray? Brothers and sisters, I urge all of us to make prayer of first importance. In fact, I'm going to ask you, watching this from home, that after this message is over, as it will end in just a minute or two, that maybe with your spouse, by yourself, with your kids, you would just stop and pray. And just pray, say, Lord, help us to make prayer of first importance. Help our church to make prayer of first importance. And can I encourage you, led by the Spirit of God working in your life, that when we have not just corporate worship, which is a primary weekly prayer gathering, but when we have other times of prayer on Wednesday nights as, as COVID ceases, could I ask you to make that of first importance too? Not, not a guilt way, not that you're missing work or there's events that come up with kids. Get it. I'll be at some of those too but that you and I would make prayer of first importance. If you want to know the health of a Christian person, a person's Christian life, you want to know the health of a church, I wonder if the importance of prayer would be the primary litmus test for what that looks like. So let me close 
our time in prayer. Father, thank you that you give us access to yourself through the Son. Father, I pray that you would make the brothers and sisters, the, the, the children of God at Hope Evangelical Free Church, those who make prayer of first importance. Help us to hear the urging, the, the command of the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy and his church, and by and through your word to hear that to ours. Help us to be a people who pray. Father, we believe that this primarily happens by the working of your spirit, not just through guilt-tripping and, and, and legalism, but through a, a vibrant, spirit-inspired desire to commune with God and one another in prayer. Help us to be a praying church. Help that to be our primary concern, to pray for all people in, 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 in all kinds of ways and ultimately be formed by that. As, our, as workers of the gospel. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ and the gift that he is to us. I pray for our brothers and sisters who cannot worship with us, that they would eventually feel comfortable coming back and gathering with their church family, but in the meantime, that you would care for them at a distance. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.